How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 198 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I hope it's not abundantly clear, but uh, allergies have been ravaging uh, my throat. <laughs> so uh, I might be a little bit raspier than usual today. I uh, hope it is not too noticeable, as I mentioned there. Um, today, I mean, we're talking about New Mutants, and it feels like it's been absolutely forever since we discussed an issue of New Mutants. Not that I was especially looking forward to spending any more time in Otherworld than I need to, but, uh, you know, still, there were some subplots here that I was enjoying. Um, I actually went back into the archives here to find out just how long it's been. Episode 169 from April 19th. Uh, that's six weeks and almost 30 episodes ago. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a long wait for uh, Issues of New Mutants. Anyway, let's get right into it here. This is New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 17. Had a June 2021 cover date. Stories called Follow the White Rabbit. Written by Vidayala, art by Rod Reese. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller, head of Exus Hickman. Edits, Bisa White-Sabolsky. Cover price, four bucks. Went on sale April 28th of 2021. Now we open with Amal Farouk checking in on Wolfsbane. Now, Rain's in a pretty bad way, having just found out that her son, Tyr, is still alive. Well, at least according to the Five and Cerebro. And when last we left her, she had returned to the Sextant, only to find it empty. She was expecting maybe for Danny to be there to, uh, console her. But all she found was a note, saying that, uh, she's going to Otherworld, and, uh, we'll, we'll soon get to that, unfortunately. So, Farouk is here to kinda... I don't know if the right word is relate to her, maybe? His ultimate goal here appears to be getting her, getting onto her good side so she'll give him a hand with his damaged young mutants. And, well, she's pretty much down for it. Uh, she starts off a little bit incredulous about how successful she might be, considering just how damaged she currently is herself, but at the end of the day, she's willing to give it a shot. Double-page spread of roll call and cred. Danny Moonstar, Karma, Wolfsbane, Shadow King, Anoli, uh, Scout, Rainboy, Cosmar, and No Girl. Info page. It's a pact that Danny and, and Shan signed uh, with uh, Merlin in exchange for their freedom. Uh, the pact is signed in blood. It's a you know a bloody thumbprint, and it's worth noting that Merlin bleeds purple. Because why not? Now the gimmick here is that the girls have to head into Roma's realm in order to reclaim a vessel she had stolen from Merlin. And uh, I gotta say, this antagonistic Merlin-Roma relationship is still very weird to me. Um, anyway, if they're able to get it back, they'll be pardoned for the high crime of... trespassing, I guess. And so, we join Danny and Karma as they're approaching the floating kingdom of Roma Regina on Pegasus' back. 
and their entry into this realm is being kind of obscured or hidden thanks to a uh, little shadow and light show courtesy of Merlin. You see, he's kind of manifested an illusion of a tremendous two-headed spider-like creature which just looms over the entire place. Which, well, yeah, would probably get people's attention and probably distract from the two tiny young ladies swooping in on Pegasus' back. So they land, and uh, they alter their appearance a little bit to fit in better here. Uh, they wear more, I don't know, medieval dresses? I don't know, they see the white rabbit here, because this is a Wonderland riff, you see. Uh, like the title of the issue suggests, they, uh, they chase it. Karma suggests that the bunny is one of Danny's manifestations, which last issue she denied, but now she's beginning to wonder herself. She does suggest that it represents, quote, someone desperate to be heard, and we'll find out more about that later. The girls wind up getting into a fight with some of Roma's men, and, uh, well, they, they fight them off. Back in the courtyard, other soldiers discover a bag that the girls had dropped, which is full of what they call witch-breed magics. Is, is this issue being written out of order? I, I mean, you know me, I love Rod Reese's art here, but uh, for a story being told in such a confusing way, maybe a more traditional artist could have helped to keep this all straight. Um, I'm sure we're supposed to be confused because, ooh-wee, Otherworld, but that doesn't make for a necessarily satisfying reading experience here. It just feels kind of like a, a bag of hammers here. It's just, I don't know. From here we go back to Krakoa. And we're at the crow's nest in the wild hunt, and here we see Anole, No Girl, Cosmar, and Rainboy experimenting with their powers. You know, we're, we're getting into the synergies, right? We're trying to use our powers in tandem to make them stronger. And here we have a No Girl, Cosmar synergy, wherein they shift their consciousness into a flower. Just to see if they can, I guess, but uh, okay. So they do the thing, and the flower wilts, because honestly, what else is a flower going to do? Uh, Rainboy suggests that maybe trying to do the same thing to a corpse would yield better, or any, I suppose, results. And Anole likes the way he thinks. Welp, uh, that was a short respite because uh, we're already back to Otherworld. Um, Danny and Karma enter a treasure hall where they're able to locate Merlin's missing urn. They're then confronted by Roma, who looks wildly off-model. But considering Roma's original Widow's Peak-heavy design, um, this might be considered an upgrade. Now, Roma uses one of the witch-breed magic candles in order to question them, because we find out here that the candle is kind of a lie detector, or maybe a truth-finder sort of thing. And uh, it looks like uh, she's got Karma bedazzled a little bit here, but then Danny reacts by projecting the original New Mutants, and also that two-headed spider thing for reasons? Um, I don't know. Maybe Rod just really wanted to draw the old-school New Mutants here. And hey, you know, it looks pretty cool, so I'll give him that. Danny tells Roma that the mutants just risked everything to save Otherworld, which I suppose is sort of kind of technically true, if we squint a bit. Uh, she tells Roma that uh, they're just here to reclaim that mutant boy, Josh, who went uh, missing through the portal last issue. She also calls out Roma for her, quote, centuries-old spat, Unquote, with Merlin, which, I mean, isn't true at all. <laughs> Unless time works very differently here, and we've crammed in several hundred years since those old Alan Moore Captain Britain stories, which I, I don't think we did. Now, Roma appreciates uh, Danny's spunk here, and she decides to take it easy on her. She tosses Merlin's missing vessel at her and says, uh, eh, she can have it for all the entertainment she just provided. 
we learn that the vessel is, well, just that. Nothing special at all, just a piece of crockery that the old man fancied. Roma says she'd, she'd have given it back to him had he asked her like an adult, but she knew that he wouldn't. Roma magics the vessel back to Merlin's place and then sends the girls to wherever the hell Josh is. She also tells them that she is now owed a favor to be called upon anytime she pleases. Which, come on, can, can we please just stop using Otherworld for like a half a minute? I, we don't need this stuff hanging over our heads, do we? Come on. Anyway, let's jump back to Krakoa, and we're at the Academos Habitat. Anole is visiting Scout, who is living alone because X-23 is still in the vault. Which, I mean, she's been out of the vault for a little while now, so this issue must have shipped quite a bit later than originally intended. Now, we see that her house is a mess because she's kind of depressed and lonely. We do see that she's not completely alone because her pet Wolverine Jonathan is there with her. Now, Annalee is here to inquire about the body farm at the Boneyard, which I thought was a top-secret sort of thing. <laughs> um, we saw the body farm established in recent issues of X-Factor so that Prodigy could study mutant decomposition. Now, quite why Annalee is rattling Scout's cage about this, I really don't know. I mean, maybe he thinks she has, like, an in with Dakin, Dakin? I don't know. Well, he gives Scout a literal... T-L semicolon D-R explanation. <sighs> like he actually says T-L D-R, which um, could be just not. <laughs> I hate that. Uh, he tells her about their little synergist experiment and how they'd like to try and use it to shift consciousness into a corpse. Scout's like, hey, why don't you just get a husk from the hatchery? Annalee says they already asked and got turned down. He reminds us that they won't allow Cosmar to get resurrected in a normal body as further indictment that the five don't care about what these kids want. And hey, we even get an editor's footnote directing us to New Mutants number 15 for all the deets. So holy cow, how about that? Scout rightly tells Anole that this all sounds like a really, really bad idea, which causes him to flip the F out, like screaming. He gets right in her face, and he tells her that she just doesn't understand. I mean, she's got a normal, human-looking body and face, and doesn't get that the less fortunate among them might want to have the opportunity to be beautiful, at least, you know, if even for a little while. I don't remember Anale being this self-conscious about the way he looks, but I, I guess we'll go with it. Ah, back to Otherworld, and we're at Sevilith which is the vampire place where I think the Horseman Death has been, like, feeding everybody since X of Tens. Now it's here where Danny and Karma run into Josh, and they tell him it's time to come home. But, well, he don't wanna. Now it's worth noting, Josh has a pretty devilish appearance himself, uh, not completely different from more current versions of DC's Blue Devil. Horns, blue skin, I mean, what else is there? Uh, he tells the girls that he fits in better here. And what's more... He can, like, walk into a room, and nobody gives him a second look. Huh. So we just wrapped up a scene with Anole being self-conscious on Krakoa, and now Josh kind of co-signs with that idea. We're going we're gonna to touch, touch upon that in a little bit. Now, Danny tells him he's being silly. Karma reminds him that, hey, you know what? If you die here, you die for good. To which he replies, so what? <laughs> wow. Uh, would you look at that? I mean, dude really is not buying into this Krakoan status quo, and I love it. 
He mentions that mutants have maybe swung too far on the other side of the persecution spectrum here. They're so used to being feared and hated that they've kind of overcorrected, emphasizing the strength of mutantdom rather than just letting mutants be. Josh says he doesn't want to be special. He just wants to be Josh. We also learn a little bit about his upbringing and how his father kicked him out of the house when his powers manifested. This led to him living in the woods, stirring up a bunch of rumors about the Jersey Devil being real. And, oh yeah, he, he lived in Jersey, which uh, might be even worse than Sprouting Horns. <clears throat> no, no offense to people from Jersey. I, I, I love you all. Now, it seems as though Josh has made his point here. And uh, Danny and Shan allow him to remain, so long as he checks in with them every month or so to assure them that he's still okay. Info page, some more uh, hot warpath dear diary action here. To which I ask, we're still doing this, huh? I really don't care. I'm not going into it. <laughs> I don't. I really don't need these uh, these t- these info pages. Back to the sextant, and we got Danny and Shan. They're home now. Danny manifests the white rabbit again, and uh, using one of those uh, weirdo Jamie Braddock's truth candles, they reveal it to actually be Trancoy Ma. That's Karma's twin brother, which is apparently continuing a story thread from the New Mutants Dead Souls miniseries, which I have not read. Uh, Now, that apparently ended with Shan absorbing Tran into her own body. Now, we wrap up with Karma asking Danny to be her partner in the Crucible. Perhaps hopeful that, should she die there, both of the Koi Ma twins could be brought back to life. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, a Just the X-Ma'am look at the Woman of, Women of Marvel one-shot and an excerpt from the Immortal She-Hulk one-shot from 2020. But that is something we will wade through next time. Uh, now let's talk about this issue of New Mutants, which was kind of the very definition of a mixed bag to me. Um, you guys know me. I'm not a fan of Otherworld here. I'm really, really, really sick of it. Um, I, I would imagine a lot of people are, because it... It refuses to end. Uh, I would understand if we just had, like, a book called Otherworld that we could all just, you know, avoid, <laughs> and it'll slip down into one of the bottom slots in the uh, top 100, but Marvel will still continue to publish it for reasons that nobody can um, figure out why. But I'm uh, really, really sick of Otherworld here. But I will say that the uh, conversation that Danny and Shan had with Josh in Otherworld, in Seveleth, Uh, led to my main takeaway for this issue here, because this is something I'm not sure they're doing, um, I'm I'm not sure they're doing this on purpose, but we have this sort of an emphasis on looks for Krakoa here, beauty on Krakoa, where, I mean, are we seeing, it used to be humans were the humans, mutants were the mutants, and, I mean, mutants were just together in their persecution. Here, when you remove the human element, right, there are no humans besides, you know, Kyle on, uh, on Krakoa, right, and Shogo, I guess. But there are no humans there, so I think it is a very, I mean, for lack of a better term, very human thing for cliques to form and for class systems to kind of just manifest, you know, um, here, and again, I'm not sure if this is being consciously done or not, we're placing a high value on, uh, attractiveness, 
and how easy it would be for a particular character to fit in as a human, right? We have Anole here saying, you know, we would like to be beautiful, you know, just, even even if just for a little while. So, and that almost kind of, uh, it kind of shines a light on why they tried doing it with a flower in the first place. Flowers are almost universally considered beautiful. And we have these kids who are outcasts. They are outcasts among the outcasts. And they find out that they can work in tandem to move their consciousness, and they put it into something that is almost universally considered pretty. You know, a flower. And they kill the flower. So what do they do now? They, I mean, there are bodies laying around on Krakoa, and if, uh, if maybe they can borrow one, they can, they can experience being normal or right or pretty or beautiful. And this is something that, this isn't the first time we're seeing this, right? We had Cosmar go to Danny Moonstar back in issue 15, as the editors thankfully gave us a footnote for, to ask her to kill her in the Crucible so she can go come back pretty. And Danny said no, of course, because, you know, she, she is beautiful as a mutant, right? In her full mutantum, <laughs> she is beautiful. And we're going to get to that in a little while as well. But I would like to direct our attention to something that's going to be taking up, well, every single X-Book this coming month, the Hellfire Gala. Now, this is something that has placed emphasis on fashion, on beauty, on the elites of Krakoa looking good. And here we have these kids who are a little less fortunate in the aesthetics department, um, who have been you know, sort of kind of cursed by their uh, their mutant manifestation here, making them look... I mean, Anole looks reptilian. He's got, you know, two different sized arms. Cosmar is a warped mess. No girl is a brain in a jar. <laughs> Rainboy is water, you know? It's, uh, it's interesting that we're seeing all this stuff right on the eve of the Hellfire Gala, which is... Being presented as a very, very superficial, very uh, Hollywood elite sort of thing here. I mean, I was flipping through the official guide to the Hellfire Gal here while trying to decide whether or not we're going to devote an entire episode to the to the freebie. I still haven't decided yet. If anybody has any thoughts on that, please you know reach out and let me know. But I'm looking at it here, and they're talking about like live from the green carpet, you know, and uh, it's like wow, this really is like a Hollywood to do, and whether. And any of us want to admit it or not, I mean, attractiveness is capital in entertainment, right? Uh, leading men and leading women are traditionally rather good-looking. And, and again, I mean, this is a—everything like that is subjective, of course, but, I mean, speaking traditionally, uh, you know, quick and dirty, <laughs> it's they're traditionally good-looking people. So we go into the gala here, which is coming across to me as a horribly vapid affair, um, where we're having— we're having characters who we've seen with responsibilities kind of eschew the responsibilities to talk about what they're going to wear. You know, Storm wants to close out a quiet council meeting because, oh, oh golly, we have the gala. You know, it's, uh, it's weird. And when we have an issue like this, I wonder if this is something we're supposed... Like, are these, are these uh, discontinuities that we're supposed to be noticing, or am I just noticing them because I'm really looking to take the piss out of the Hellfire Gala? I, I really don't know. Uh, so I would love to hear everybody's thoughts on on this take, because uh, 
it struck me as very odd, you know, in the timing. Now, we talked about Danny Moonstar refusing to do the favor for Cosmar, right? Which brings us to the ending of this issue here, which was just racked with hypocrisy. Um, uh, Shan asks if Danny will be her partner. We don't get an answer from Danny, right? We don't get a yes, we don't get a no. We don't even get a reaction shot. It ends with Shan asking the question in a close-up on her own face. Now, I'm thinking if Danny does agree to do this, it's uh, it's very hypocritical, right? Uh, Shan... She's She has her mutant power, right? She is powered, so she shouldn't be eligible for the Crucible. But if they make an exception for her... Um, you know, I hate using terms like slippery slope because I think that's one of those things that we go to too often <laughs> when we want to try to make something into a bigger deal than it is. But this could lead to the you know classic slippery slope here. It's like, well, if you made the allowance for her, well, why can't you? kill Cosmar and let her come back as a uh, more normal, human-looking character. And what then about the clones? Why can't we bring a Madeline Pryor back, right? Why can't we bring the clones back? Why, why would we be worried about Scout? We're making allowances left and right. Let's just uh, throw all the rules out. You know, I feel like this could be that first domino. Uh, you know, not the character domino, of course, the little, you know, thing with the pips on it. Uh, this could be the first domino to tip that leads to... A lot more uh, inconvenient uh, questioning uh, around the uh, the regulations of uh, the resurrection protocols here, and if that's what it's leading to, then I got no problem with it. I, I want us to explore those kind of questions here. I want to know why you know a preferential treatment's a thing, right? And uh, getting back to my original point here, um, it looks to be that there is something of a class system at play here in Krakoa itself. And uh, certain groups get allowances, certain groups do not. It really is starting to mirror the wider Earth, right? The wider world, the wider humanity, in just a uh, more micro way rather than a macro way. And I don't know, it may say something about the human condition that this sort of thing is inevitable in a way. And uh, if we're exploring those questions, I, I hope they uh, I hope they do it with uh, with tact, and I hope they give it enough time to uh, to breathe a little bit because I think these are some very very important and very very challenging questions that we if this does go that way we'll we'll be talking about for quite a while because I mean this is something where there is no wrong there is no right. There is no black, there is no white. It's all gray and um, subject to perspective and interpretation. So I'm hoping that's the way we're going here. I'm going to resist the urge to complain a little bit more about Otherworld. I'll just say that uh, Rod Reese's work here was was gorgeous, just a little hard to follow in some places here. It really felt like um, the opening uh, handful of pages could have been shown in any order. They were just kind of all over the place. Uh, and uh, that, you know, that could be me being a little, you know, denser than usual, but, uh, I just feel like it could have been told a little bit clearer. Then again, ooh wee, it's Otherworld, you know, it's the Otherworld effect. We're supposed to be confused, I'm, who knows, but, uh, it doesn't make for a satisfying read is what I'm trying to get across to, uh, to everyone here. But overall, I, you know, end where I started. This was a, this was a mixed bag. Uh, there was stuff to like, there was stuff to not like. It's all, uh... Yeah, mileage may vary, right? But uh, 
think that's all I have to say about this issue here. Uh, before we cut on out, let's hop into the mailbag here. We have one letter from uh, our friend Andrew Franklin. He's talking about cable number 10. And he says, One of the elements of this series I've been enjoying is all the moments of Cyclops being a dad to Kid Cable. So I was glad that the bulk of this issue has the two of them together for a much-needed father-son chat. It's the same conversation that Cable's been having over the last several issues, but I still enjoy seeing Scott in dad mode. I have to imagine that Scott relishes having his son around, so I can believe he'd be strongly against Cable's plan to bring the grown-up version back. It's also really sweet that he wants his son on the new X-Men team. I would have liked more of Cyclops getting to be a dad after all this time. And speaking of the old man, I took the reveal of the light of Galador in possession of the older Cable we've been following to be the first confirmation that it's an older version of Kid Cable and not the original Old Man Cable. It wasn't ever clear to me before that before that, that this was definitely the case, so I found it to be pretty significant, especially if this is the old man who will be coming back into the Marvel books. And yeah, that was a huge reveal here, where we have the old man that we've been following for, you know, the better part of the past ten issues. He hasn't shown up in everyone. We had the, uh, you know, little X of Swords, uh, you know, break there, but we've been seeing him fairly often, and we didn't know who this was. I mean, we knew who it was, we just didn't know which it was, uh... I think we were led to assume, and probably on purpose, that this was the old man just somewhere else in time, and that maybe somewhere down the line uh, we would have a confrontation between the the two cables. Then again, we also didn't realize that this book was going to be canceled after 12 issues, so it maybe could have uh, boiled a little bit longer in the pot, right? But um, I was happy to see uh, the light of Galador in the in the different time, different place with the older cable here. And we do uh, get a look at his face here, and it doesn't quite look as haggard as the traditional old man Cable. It does have uh, almost like a youthful look to it. It's just he's older. So I took that, and that might just be in my head. You know, I, I may have just been... I mean, Phil Noto is a very stylized artist, right? Uh, so maybe that was just something that I saw that wasn't meant to be seen, but it looked like he had a like a, like a softer complexion. Right, a little bit less haggard, and uh, and he was also wielding the light of Galador. So, very interesting, very interesting stuff. And I'm wondering if this, you know, um, old version of the kid Cable is going to come back and return the favor from extermination and uh, take out his uh, his younger counterpart. Though, I mean, if he does, then doesn't he disappear? I I, I don't want to get into time travel stuff. I've never understood it, <laughs> and I never will. Uh, Andrew continues, These X-Book info pages are a real boon to authors whose stories need to be resolved quickly, aren't they? Uh, the one we get here isn't even pretending to be an in-universe item. It's just information from Duggan's story notes. Oh, by the way, Cable's old space station Grey Malkin is back with a new AI named Bell, and it's known about Strife for a while, and it's just waiting to show up in the story. And it would have been a cool reveal, but we got no time for that because we've been cancelled. <laughs> And it even mentions the Hellfire Gala, because of course it does. Uh, will there be a bell for this ball? Most certainly, right? <laughs> it's true. It's true. And I mean, we give we give the writers a lot of guff for over-relying, I guess, on the, uh, on the info pages. But here, I mean, it stands to reason that we only have, you know, uh, 40 pages left to this thing, right? If we're lucky, there'll be 40 pages left to this thing, because I'm... 
part of me is figuring that like the 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 last third of issue twelve is going to be like a lead into the uh, to the stupid Guardians of the Galaxy thing. But again, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. So yeah, an info page is definitely a a boon to a creator who's like, hey, <laughs> hey, you're standing in that rug right now. We're about to yank it out from under you. So yeah, definitely good and responsible use of the very limited and more limited by the day uh, paginal real estate allotted to this cable series. Andrew continues, That was the second obligatory gala mention this issue, the first one being the scene where Kid Cable catches up to Cyclops while he's being fitted for an outfit. And while reading this scene, I couldn't stop thinking about how super relatable all this gala talk has been. I can't count how many times I had to worry about getting my fabulous outfit just right so I can impress everyone at one super fancy gala or another. Or how often I had emergencies come up that I just didn't have time to deal with because, hello, I've got to get ready for a gala. We've all been there, right, folks? I'm just kidding around. The gala stuff doesn't really bother me, but since it's been pointed out so much, it now sticks out like a sore thumb to me. I hope I enjoy reading the crossover, because I plan on reading them all, and it does seem like some interesting things will come out of it. And yeah, I, you know, part of me's looking forward to it, part of me's dreading it. I think that's just, um, my conditioning as a Marvel fan. <laughs> Anytime we get an event on the horizon, like, part of me is like, oh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what that is, and then the other part of me is like, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> and the Hellfire Gala is, uh, definitely, you know, no exception to that, uh, to that vibe. Um... And the fact that, like, when we started hearing about the gala, it was uh, seldom. We didn't hear much about it, and, like, I think all of our ears perked up, or at least mine did. It was like, oh, okay, that's something to keep an eye out for. And then all of a sudden it was everywhere. It was just like, oh, yeah, the gala. Oh, the gala. The gala. Oh, the gala. Ooh, can't talk about that. We got the gala. And uh, a little too much. A little too much. It's almost like it's trying to convince us that it's more important than it's going to be, which... uh, I mean, that that's just comics now, so who knows? <laughs> who knows? Uh, Andrew continues. The thing I really hated about this issue is the talk between Emma and Cable, and how they reframe Apocalypse's past villainy as, no, actually, he was trying to make us all stronger, and it was a good thing. Excuse me? I find that insulting. I never liked how much the Dawn of X books focused on Apocalypse, or how echoes of his old philosophy were so readily taken by the Krakoans for things like the Crucible, which I hate. Or any of the Iraqo crap, and how Hickman tried to reframe his past actions, but this is next level. Actually, Cable, all the abuse you suffered was good, and you deserved it, because he was just trying to make you better. That's just garbage, and I find it distasteful how we're supposed to see Apocalypse now as some great mutant hero. Now, you see, that's an excellent point that I completely glossed over in my uh, in my show notes, because it was just a... It felt like a... Um, I don't know, it felt... Less of an indictment on, or less of an attempt to change the uh, like the prism through which we view Apocalypse, and just like something of a meaningless soundbite, you know, just something that they said because they thought it was something that's supposed to be said because we're all supposed to be trusting this guy now. I mean, he's not there now, but we're trying to trust this guy, and you're you're absolutely one hundred percent right. They've really co-opted a lot of his point of view and his um, methodology into governing Krakoa here. You mentioned the Crucible. I mean, that's we saw that Apocalypse was the Crucifer, you know, in the first appearance of the Crucible, at least the one that we saw. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird reframing. And it's one of those things that, uh, well, this is a, an X-lapse chestnut, but um, how do we walk it back? 
right? Um, we've accepted Apocalypse as a maybe not so much a hero, but uh, you know, not not necessarily a villain either. And since we have this brand new origin for Krakoa and the you know how it's centuries and centuries and centuries old, and we had the one island, uh, you know, Okara, and Apocalypse was there, and that whole you know misreading of what mutants were, you know, no longer children of the atom, affected by uh, you know bombs and stuff. This is a race that was just always around and um, making them something that. Uh, just doesn't feel necessarily right to me. So I think I saw the reframing of Apocalypse's past as kind of a play on all of that, you know? Like, he was the first of us, or one of the first of us, and I don't know. I really, really don't know here. Especially since, I mean, who knows when we're going to see him again, and when we do see him, is he going to be the Apocalypse that left at the end of X of Swords, or is it just going to be a raving villain like we saw throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s? I don't know. I really, really don't know. But uh, I do agree with you. I do agree with you here. We're just uh, we're viewing Apocalypse in a whole different light now. And it's funny, I was just talking to a friend uh, working on the 200th episode of this show here, and we were taking a look at uh, handbook um, entries and looking at how much of the distant past was very, very sparsely uh, notated. But... For the past five years or so, you can get a full page out of that. And uh, comparing that to just news and history in general, because right now everyone is a journalist, everyone is a reporter, everyone is a writer. So everything that happens now is very, very well documented, where even 10 years ago, it wasn't quite the same way, much less 100 years ago or 200 years ago. History is more dense now. Than it has ever been, and it'll only get denser as we go. So comparing the entries in a Marvel handbook to real history, it's weird to see how how they're kind of parallel here, where great big swaths of a character is just omitted. You know, things from their origin, things from their first five years in print. But then you get to, like, the current stuff, and it's just jam-packed with, like, oh, then there was this event, and this event, and this event, and this event, and this character did that, 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 and they died here and came back here and then died again here, and then they killed this person. And then they were depowered, and then they were repowered, then they found armor. All the stuff in the past five years or so is just crammed in there, but all the past history is very, very sparse. So we have a character like Apocalypse here, and we're kind of using that same sort of precedent where it's like, well, only what happened recently matters. You know, we learned about Arako. We learned about, I mean, we learned about Okara and Krakoa and Arako. That's new information, right? We learned about the original Four Horsemen, right? That's new information. It's retconned, of course, but we're paying all this attention to that, but we're not going to talk about everything that Apocalypse did to Cable. You know, X-Factor number 68, you know, infecting him with the techno-organic virus and having him sent to the future. Then the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix where, you know, we find out about how Apocalypse created Strife and what Strife did to everybody. We had the Executioner's song. We had all this stuff. And it's kind of just omitted. It's seen as not as important as what's happened since Apocalypse landed on Krakoa in House of X number 5. It kind of sucks, but I think that's just, I think that's just what comics are now. You know, we're not expected to have these 
We're not expected to have long-term memory unless the story calls for us to have long-term memory. So all the atrocities of old are kind of just swept under the rug, and all we're worried about is, uh, you know, the the big blue magician who uh, hung out in Jamie Braddock's basement um, cutting apart Morgan Le Fay. Right. But uh, Andrew wraps up with, but never mind all that, we have a gala to prepare for. So until we see those head-turning fashions on the red carpet make my neck slapsed. Well, we know it's going to be a green carpet because it's, uh, you know, Krakoa and and green. And uh, yes, (laughs) but thank you so much for that email. There was a lot to uh, think about and talk about there. Thank you so much for uh, all that food for thought and all that great discussion. Now, if anyone else out there would like to write in, be part of the show, I would, uh, you know, encourage you to do so. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. Or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We also have the X-Lapsed voicemail. You can give us a call at 623-396-JERK. Yes, that is 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our group is 90s X-Men. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And uh, while you're there, if you dig what you hear, or just appreciate the effort that goes into it, or over 600 episodes on that channel, many thousands of hours. So uh, if you appreciate the effort, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show, Maybe tell a friend or two. It would really, really mean the world to me. But that is where we'll leave it for today. Um, I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh